Hey guys, Hello Bass here with another episode number 21 already. Wow, time flies. This week, we're talking with Kate Laufenberg all about the Mississippi River and some BFL recaps on Lake Winnebago and Lake Shelbyville in Illinois. Uh, tons of great information, tons of bait stuff, tons of techniques, how to fish the river, how to navigate the river. If you have any aspirations of fishing the river or getting better at the river, you're definitely going to want to listen to this one. And just to mention, uh, if you guys are looking for fishing tackle and need a little discount, check out Omnia Fishing. They do a really great job. They have a lot of great stuff. And you can use code RICHLINGREN15, all caps, all one word, to get 15% off your first order. If you can't remember that, there's links in the description of the podcast and of my YouTube videos. So check that out. Hope that helps you guys out and uh, enjoy the episode. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. We are live. So, all right. Give it a second here. Let a few people get in here. Let the notifications roll out. Um, Kate can get settled in. He's not used to the big stage. So, (laughs) all right. We got White Whale and Lunkers ready to go. Uh, Awesome. My notification. So Sound is good. All right. So, eight. 23 already. Oh, this thing's lit. All right. So, Cade Loffenberg from Lacrosse. Uh, I think it would be fair to call you a river rat. Is that a, is that a fair accusation? Yeah, I'm guilty as charged, I suppose. But you've proven to catch him a few other places. You, you've done all right traveling around as well, so we won't, like, pigeonhole you into just a river rat. But um, why don't you just give us a little bit about yourself? I know we talked on IG Live a month or two ago, but this is going to be a little more a little more uh, formalized, I guess, and uh, structured maybe, and uh, we'll get into a little more depth. So just give us a little bit about yourself. What's up, everybody? Thanks for joining. Tom, Sycamore, Dustin, Bill. Meet Cade. Cade catches. We're going to learn some stuff from Cade, and he's going to tell us about himself. (laughs) Hey, guys. I'm Cade Laufenberg. Uh, I was born and raised in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and obviously right on the hub of the Mississippi River bass fishing scene. And uh, I grew a pretty strong obsession for the sport of bass fishing at an early age. Started fishing from shore when I was in elementary school and just determined that I needed to get a boat. So I saved up, did lawn mowing in my neighborhood. I pedaled to my neighbors and raise enough money to buy a 12 foot little V bottom. And, uh, then I was, you know, just gone with the wind. I was out there every day fishing, learning the river and learning how to catch bass. Time out. He says, is that the yellow one? The yellow one. That's the banana. (laughs) Still have it. Can't get rid of it. Hopefully give it to some kids someday. My own kids, hopefully, (laughs) but one way or another, some kid is going to use that boat someday. And that's my plan for it. But, uh, you know, that transition into fishing, uh, junior bass tournaments, and then going to college uh, at Winona State University here in southeastern Minnesota, where I competed 
uh, on the college team and I was president of the college club there for a number of years. And that kind of launched me into like the next level of tournament fishing. You know, I was able to get some exposure and get on TV and do a lot of really cool, fun things. And now I fish uh, BFLs and TBF stuff and kind of hodgepodge around and jump into stuff that I think I can do well in, you know, call me a jackpotter. It is what it is, but I fish a lot of big tournaments that come to the Mississippi river. And uh, I also do the Bassmaster opens last year. Um, that was kind of a one-time thing because they came to the Mississippi river and uh, I wanted to make sure I fished all the events um, in case I were to win the one in lacrosse and qualify for the classic. Um, but I do hope to get back to the Bassmaster opens as soon as uh, I get a boat situation and a financial situation that'll allow me to do that again. It's, that's a stage I just need to get back to. So that's a little bit about me and my fishing and kind of where I'm at right now. And yeah, it's just summed up in a nutshell real quick. Yeah. So Lunkers, yes, we're definitely going to talk about the Mississippi River in detail. So you just hold on. We'll get there. And I feel your pain for once in a long time. I've definitely got some motor problems. So I get what that's like because I definitely would have been uh, sliding into your DMs and coming down to visit you. My motor would have been running. Uh yeah. To get out and do some fun fishing this spring but so i'm about this close to ordering a replacement powerhead for my my 200 merc so sounds like you need to just repower the thing well the, well here's the thing it's an 05 hull and this is not my long-term hull plan i guess like it's it's a nice boat i mean it's a good boat it's a tournament i mean, I, I mean i've done really well in this boat um, but I would like a just slightly bigger boat. Um, I don't want like a 21 footer, but I want something just a little bigger for just some of the bigger events. This thing only has like, I don't know, a 27 gallon tank in it or like, so like big runs on the river and like, there's been tournaments. Like when I went to the divisionals in Oahe, where I couldn't go to where I wanted to fish because I literally couldn't make it there and get back. So like there's a few things about this boat that they're not my, if this was a hull that I was like, I love this boat. It has everything I want. I would be more likely to like, slap a new one on it but i just don't think since i don't plan to be in this boat for more than a few more years i just don't think it's worth the investment yeah i'll never get that money back you know hanging a new one on it so yeah very true so um but yeah that, that's fishing like <laughs> that's the downside of fishing is, is is owning and maintaining a boat um so what what are your plans you said you're you're kind of trying to get your boat situation what, what do you got cooking yeah, absolutely. I feel all of your pain right there. I've been plagued by boat issues for the last several years. A lot of people know a lot of that stuff. Um, basically, been borrowing boats the last couple of tournaments here. Uh, and a quick big shout out to Max Wilson and Jake Willems. Uh, those two guys helped me out in the last two tournaments, gave me a boat to use. Worked out awesome. No issues. Um, but it's time for me to get my own boat again uh i have my champion it's still in my possession it's parked right behind me over here but it's just not tournament ready anymore it's i've had a lot of issues with it um basically low compression and a bunch of stuff's going on and it's time to just get something else so next week i'm running to oshkosh wisconsin to pick up a new boat uh, it's a 19 foot triton with a 200 merc on it only 90 hours it's a 2013 and it's pretty much in mint condition it looks like the guy probably had a dock slip on some lake and put it in there for a couple weeks out of the year and then put it in the garage. I mean, it's perfect condition. It's, uh, you know, it doesn't have graphs on it. It's got an 80 pound trolling motor on it. So there's some stuff I need to do to it right out of the, out of the gate to get it the way I want. 
But for me, it's just having that reliable hull and a reliable motor that I can count on for the next few years until I can hopefully get into an even better boat after that. So yeah. that's, and kind that, of, that's kind of a sweet spot for Triton. Like 2015 is when they sold. So that that's when I, in my opinion, when Tritons were at like its best, like that's when they were still under Earl Ben's control. So I think that's, that's a solid investment. So, um, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean like, so, and on a side note, if anybody's looking for a inexpensive project boat, Kid's got his champion for sale. <laughs> yeah, I've got it listed at fifty six hundred dollars right now, and I've had some lowball offers and a few guys that you know offered me to buy it, but then it fell through. You know, tire kickers. So, still looking for that perfect buyer, somebody that wants a champion hull that's willing to put in the work. I mean, it yeah. could be. I mean, the, the, the boat, the, the boat, the hull's in pretty good shape, isn't it? I mean, like, there's. I mean, it's older, but I mean, it's not no or. No, there's there's some stuff going on. It's all it's all on Facebook. If you want to find sure. the list, the details are there. How big is Send that? Me a it's a twenty footer. It's a Champ two hundred three. If anybody's seriously interested in it, uh, send me a message on Facebook at Cade Loffenberg. Uh, I can give you the details and send you the link to the stuff. And I got a ton of pictures. There's there's some fiberglass work that's going to need to be done, but it's you know it's certainly repairable, and and you could get a new motor on it and have a pretty sweet fishing machine for a lot of years to come if you went that route but champion's not the ideal river hull <laughs> for sneaking into stuff like it's not the shallowest uh drafting i mean they're, they're a great boat but i mean like uh not the first boat i think of when i want to go flying through the backwaters i guess is what <laughs> i think <laughs> i never had problems with it as far as getting shallow and i mean it handles really well they turn on a mm -hmm. dime pretty impressive yep. how they turn so it is actually pretty sweet for running like the sloughs where you got to make sharp turns and you don't have to trim down and half come off pad like you do in some other boat to get around those corners but uh but yeah it, it's more of a rough water boat if you're fishing big water that's the boat you want to have nice we got the, the doctors in the house jj Patton. so nice phone doctor right yeah. that's what he does okay. right I think he's a pediatrician. Oh, I'm thinking of someone else. Yeah, JJ from Iowa. Well, I know JJ. I just for some reason thought he was a chiropractor. Yeah, I could be wrong, but sorry, JJ. Um, so cool. Yeah, that's uh, exciting. Um, hope that goes well for family practice. Sure. Um, so I guess you've uh, so you had a few BFLs and you're fishing two divisions this year, right? Yeah. Uh, you had what one in lacrosse and then one in the Illini or is there more than that? Yeah, one of each so far. It's kind of okay. a crazy undertaking and it's a lot of stress going into uh like hyping it up, you know, thinking about it going into the events and now that I've got one of each behind me, it's it's kind of a big sigh of relief to be where I'm at. I I did all right, right in the first two events, so I'm feeling a lot better. <laughs> So, and, and explain, I mean, I know, but why are you fishing two events? And why would you want to, on your own goodwill, go fish the Illini division? <laughs> well, I actually don't even feel like it's on my own goodwill. I almost feel like there's a gun to my head saying, you got to go fish this, because if you don't, you're going to really hate yourself in October when the Illini division and the Michigan division, the Ozark division, and the Indiana division all have their BFL regional in my home water, Lacrosse, Wisconsin, 
um, fishing for $70,000 and I'm not there. So that's, that's the whole reason why I'm doing this is to qualify for the BFL regional in lacrosse. Um, I, I, I'm not hiding that at all. You know, it's, it's not like I'm going down there to just jackpot these tournaments. Cause I think I'm some kind of phenom angry that can go win out of town. You know, it's, it's just trying to make that regional. And so I'm just looking but, at and, and except for the all American, right. On top of the money, that would be the other. Yeah. Right? The All-American for sure is like a big deal too. I don't know. My sights are really set on, on winning that tournament. But obviously, I mean, making the All-American would be a huge accomplishment as well. Do they still provide votes for the All-American? Because that, that would work well with your... <laughs> I don't think they do anymore. But I don't know if they do. Hopefully by then, though, I'll have this Brighton and it'll be rigged out and it'll be a really sturdy tournament vote. So I'm not super worried about the boat thing. But I'm actually not going to fish all of the Great Lakes tournaments this year for the first time since before okay. 2016. Um, I mean, I might change my mind last minute. We'll see. But as of right now, I'm really going to try to pour all of my energy into the Illini Division tournaments because it's going to take a lot out of me to make that regional, I think, just because of how tough that, like, the tough fisheries are. Um so I'm probably going to skip a couple of my more Achilles heel um, type of BFLs in the Great Lakes division. Like I'm not going to do Prairie du Chien this year. I'm not going to do the three fish July tournament. Um, instead, I'm going to be fishing the head to head tournament in July in lacrosse, which is literally two days after the BFL starts. So that's the main reason why I'm not doing the BFLs because I don't want to be trying to fish for 10 days straight and burn all my fish and try to juggle multiple tournaments and managing fish. You know, I just want to focus on winning that head to head tournament. So this year's you're, all not about really, you're not really planning to try to make two regionals. You're only trying to make your uh, home re or like the regional that comes to your place. Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. I, I don't, um, if I fish the great lakes division, the regional goes to table rock Lake in October. And I just really have no desire to go to that event. Um, I mean, if it was all I had to choose from, then I would certainly do it. But um, yeah, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm not really enthused about going to Table Rock when it takes like six pounds to cash a check in that time of year. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so let's talk about, so you had the, the first term of the year was the, uh, the, I guess it was a weird time. When when was it? Was it early June was the first lacrosse BFL this year? Well, we actually haven't had one in lacrosse yet. We just had oh, Winnicott. Oh, it was just Bago. It was Bago. That's right. Never mind. I do remember that yep. now. Yep. Just a couple weeks ago, June 13th was the date. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of your typical run-of-the-mill Winnicott tournament. You know, 15 pounds won it. It actually took a little more weight to get a check this year than it has typically in the past, uh -huh. which kind of – burned me a little bit because I was right on that bubble. I had 11.9, which in years past, I would have been right up there in like the top 12 area. Sure. But th this time it was, I was all the way down in 19th with 11 and a half pounds. So there's a bunch of guys in that almost 12 pound range. Uh, and then, you know, if you had 13 pounds, you were really doing something at that tournament. So. Yeah, that's kind of sounds like it's a, about like the one time I fished the, out there, I think I had like 11 pounds and I finished right, I don't know, just outside the top 10, I think, and cash check. 
Um, it's, it, it's a super interesting fishery. I've always been intrigued by it. I've always done reasonably well there. Um, it's not the easiest. It's not the greatest fishery, but it's it's a really unique fishery, and it's it's a lot of fun. It can be a lot of fun if you if you like a challenge. Like there's a lot of options, and there's a lot of unique things about that system that uh, that I really kind of enjoy uh, when you when you can you know when you have the success. And it's not always like doesn't mean you smash them, but like when you grind out a good limit on that lake, there's a satisfaction to that. Yeah. Um, oh no doubt, and it's. It's it's just crazy, like how everything. I don't know. It's such a big body of water, and everything is so fishy. And a lot of it is good. Like it actually fishes bigger than a lot of bodies of water in a lot of ways. You know, like I, honestly, I wasn't wearing a visor even. It was, it was weird. That that system fishes bigger than Pool Eight. I mean, or yeah. than, than the river. I mean, you can you can really get away from people if you want to. Mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately, if you want to win the tournament, you're probably going to have to fish around a lot of other people. But, but you can you can go and cast a check and be all by yourself, and that's what I tended to do at that tournament. Um, so did you, did you go off the wolf, or did you? What did you? What was your plan in that? I can't totally develop where I go because it. Would I mean, be just generally, did you like go up one of the rivers? Did you fish the lakes? Did you fish the big lake? Like, I fish river stuff when I'm there. Okay. Uh, so I just you're either a fox or a wolf guy when you go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, I mean, there's three strategies. You either go up one of the little, what I would call a little rover when you compared to like the Mississippi. <clears throat> you fish in the, the Poigan, Butamore, Winnicani section, or you go up to the big lake. I mean, there, I mean, there's subtleties within that, but there's kind of three options as far as like the type of water you fish. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can go up the fox, you can go up the wolf, you can stay close. Or you can go to Bago, yeah. Well, and I mean, Poigan's a big player too, but people don't talk mm -hmm. much about that. Yeah, it's it's because there is offshore stuff in those smaller lakes, and there's shallow stuff, and there's a lot of things, and they're kind of subtle, sneaky things on those. Uh, it's interesting. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. And so, what, I mean, what I mean, were you uh, frogging, swim jigging, flipping? Like, what kind of? Uh, my main deal there, I got it right here. I was doing a craw tube, flipping a three-eighth ounce claw craw tube, nice. big white baits, uh, green pumpkin, pretty simple setup. That's flipping what I grass, wood, banks. Grass. It was a little bit of everything, but the biggest thing was you'd have a spawning bay, and there'd be kind of a cleaner water coming out of that spawning bay, and the fish would be just downstream of the bay in that clean pocket of water in the current and they'd be mm -hmm. on just about anything, whether it was wood, rock, a little grass line, you know, it didn't, it didn't matter what it was. It just had to be something to block that current. And yeah, I just, pretty standard there. Them right when they come out of that, those bays, they set yeah. up first wherever they're going to go. Exactly. And I, I put it on a braided line. Ah, this is weird. Cause it's like reverse. So I have to, <laughs> mirror. Okay, there we go. So I, I got braided line. It's uh, 50 pound sunline FX2 braid, and then I run uh, 17 pound leader fluorocarbon leader um, sunline sniper, and I tie an FG knot. And that's just the deal for flipping that kind of stuff. Like that's not something you'd want to punch with, but if I'm flipping just isolated grass and wood and all that kind of stuff, I love my hookup ratio fishing with that leader. And I use sure. a left-handed reel for that too. I've trained myself how to fish with both hands 
And when I'm fishing these lighter Texas rigs, a left-handed reel is just tough to beat. I can just kind of lean into them and just, it just hooks them right in the brain every time. Yeah. So speaking of uh, hooks, uh, what for crocodile, are you doing e, uh, EWG or a straight shank or what's your preference on that? The one that's on there right now is just a straight EWG and I snell it, but my favorite way to fish it, I take a play out of the Seth Fighter book. Um, when he fishes tubes, he uses that ring hooked, uh, yeah. he uses that ringed hook. And Gamakatsu makes one. I just throw a three out ringed hook from Gamakatsu on there. And yeah, the hookup ratio is fantastic with that ringed hook. And it seems like it gets good action. It doesn't fall up the bait quite as much. So you already got something similar. Yeah. Yeah, I just started playing around with it this year. I'm a big fan so far. Yeah, especially it's nice because you don't have to. You can just tie your your basic generic knot, and it works just fine. Like, because if I'm not using that ring hook, then I feel the need to snell my hooks if I'm flipping. So tying a snell knot is just a little more complex when you're out there on the water. So I'd rather just tie straight to a ring hook than tie another snell knot. You know, it just works out a lot better that way. Yeah, and we talked about this last week. I had Sam on Sobe. And just for the record, you have uh, – we set a record for concurrent viewers, but, Cade, you have now surpassed the great Sam Sobe in live viewers. So <laughs> you can your resume. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 we talked to we'll, – we'll go into super detail. But, like, I played around with EWGs and straight shanks and snelling straight shanks, and I've had mixed results on – flipping grass and keeping fish pinned and braid and floral and small sample size. It's this EWG is working for me so far. So I'm pretty, pretty impressed with that so far. And kind of where we ended uh, our conversation last week is it's really about, to me, it's about mechanics. You have to find the hook, not combo that matches your set mechanics. Like yeah, on your reel. So like, I, I think, the snell knot is really good for some people and straight chain stuff for good people. And you know what I mean? Like, and I think, uh, if, if what you do works, don't change it. Uh, but if you're having troubles, I would say, check out this EWG ring tuck. It's, it's, uh, um, it's a, it's, it's a pretty good option. Uh, so JJ is asking what hook it is. So it's a VMC ringed EWG hook. Um, you can find them at Omnia or tackle warehouse or anything like that. Um, I don't I like the four aught for most of my stuff. I don't know. Is, is that the one you're using or you use a different version of that or? Gamakatsu makes one too. It's just same exact type of hook. It's just the Gamakatsu if you prefer them. And that's, those are the hooks that I use. So. Yeah. I mean. Uh, they both good. accomplish the exact same thing. And so basically what they're, what they do is uh, it's just an EWG. So the hook is really nothing special. I mean, it's just the standard EWG they sell without, but at least the um, it comes with a little a, a solid ring on it, right? A welded solid ring. Um, so you probably could try like putting your own like uh, split ring, split ring. <laughs> uh, but then you're gonna have a gap, and it's probably not quite as strong as connection. Um, and finding the right size and the right strength might be a little tricky, but you could probably make your own. Um, so, but yeah, that's far, and I think it gives it a little better action like on the fall and when you're you're pumping it's a little more free kind of like a wobble head or a, something like that versus just being a texas rig yeah definitely 
And it's surprisingly, it comes through grass really well. It doesn't seem to hang up on the grass at all. So, and I have no idea what the physics or mechanics on why it seems to hook better, but the results seem to be there. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, as long as you got a sharp hook. I mean, that's another thing that I'm really big on. I didn't used to always be, but a smart fisherman told me a long time ago, like you got to be checking your hooks like a hawk. So I use a little hook file and actually it's a sharpening stone. And when I'm on the water, like anytime I get a snag or even just after catching a bunch of fish, like I just check my hook. I take the hook point and just prick it into my fingernail. And if it scratches, it's not sharp enough. You want it to actually stick into your fingernail when you try to run it over your finger. Yeah, so 100%. If you keep that hook sharp and you've got the right, like you said, the mechanics, I mean, you have to have kind of the right hook set, um, but it's going to work really well. My preferred hook set, and this is again, taking a play right from Seth Fighter because I fished with him. I watched how he did it. I learned from that. I, like I said, I use a left-handed reel. I'm using great to fluorocarbon leader, and the hook set is just kind of a lean into them and reel. You're not trying to slack line jack them, you know, it's, it's a lean and a reel. Not the Gerald Swindle, slack line, like jack a jig fish type of deal. As long as you're using braid, that lean and reel technique is going to work. If you're using fluorocarbon, it's probably not going to work. You're going to probably need to jack them a little bit more. Yeah, so, and I'll say that I, I like to jack them, and I fish more straight fluorocarbon, and the hook still works for me. So, um, so there's a question about your uh, secret gumbo recipe. I'm guessing that's some kind of a... Yeah, I saw that. That was uh, Pierce. He, uh, I, I stayed with him and his family uh, down at Toledo Bend, and they showed me how to make some real good gumbo. Nice. So. Trey wants to know advice for any high school anglers in lacrosse. Hold on. We're going to get to that. We're going to kind of finish his BFL talk, and then we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, yeah, so another thing I was going to say on hooks is like – so other or change your hooks a lot. And what I do, like when I – uh, I'll cut my hooks off like before a tournament and put fresh hooks on. And then when I put the hooks away, I leave the tag end on them to know that's a used hook. And that's what I use in practice. I use my old used, dull, beat up hooks in practice because a lot of times you don't necessarily want to catch them or you don't care if they flop off or you get them up to the surface and they pop off. So like uh, yeah, use those used hooks for practice. Don't break out those super sharp, nice, shiny hooks for practice. Uh, use the old ones and uh, you're using them up and if a pike bites it off, you don't get pissed and if you dump a few fish, then they're a little more likely to bite in practice if you don't bring them all the way to the boat. So, uh, but yeah, don't don't be chintzy on hooks. Like, buy good hooks, whether it's VMC or, or Gamagatsu or Owner or anything like that. Uh, you know, that's not worth investing in. So, I kind of talked about lacrosse, uh, Bago. Uh, so then you went down to Shelbyville. Shelbyville. I heard that was high water. Is that true? Yeah. When I got there, the lake was 10 feet high. I mean, it was it was something to see for sure. Um, I'm actually surprised. They have good boat landings down there. Like you could put in. They actually had a lot of these boat landings actually had a second boat landing that was like the high water only ramp. And they would close down the normal ramp and open that high water one. That's a pretty cool deal that I wish that you know we did around here more but um yeah it's 10 foot high and it was falling like six inches a day or something like that so falling pretty steady and I think that played a big ideal conditions <laughs> I, actually I thought they were perfect conditions it's just the lake was 
really not big enough for the number of boats for that pattern that was going on. Because, like, sure. since the water was so high, that lake, they spawned, like, way later than they normally would. And the fish were still, like, in the bushes when I got there. And it was, like, looking like maybe this tournament could be one shallow. But you had the falling water and you had, like, 95-degree air temps every day. Everything was pushing those fish off the bank. So that's what I did. Like I spent the first half of my first day of practice running as far up the river as I could go. Cause I thought nobody else would try it. Like I was so far up there and I borrowed a tin boat. So it was the perfect scenario to do that. Um, I talked to somebody before I went down there, like a local guy that said like, Oh, it's really treacherous to go up that river. Like I wouldn't do it. It's sketchy. And I was like, perfect. That sounds just like what I need to be doing, you know? And I went up there and I was like, you know, to a river rat, it didn't look sketchy at all. I'm like, I can see where the channel swings are. I know where to run. Like, you know, so it wasn't bad, but I just couldn't get bit. So after that little stunt, uh, stint, I decided I needed to spend my time off the bank. So I started graphing points. There's really not a lot of cover on any of the points or there's not a bunch of big ledges out in front of the creeks and stuff. It's pretty much just point. When the fish get offshore, they're on the points in that lake. And a gravel, a little sand, maybe yeah, there's, something. There's almost no gravel. It's all clay. I mean, the banks, the whole lake is just clay banks, and the points are just clay points. So, I mean, you kind of need a spot in the point where it's like a, a sharper break or something like that that will hold the fish. And what I was keying on was the ends of the points would be like a some of these points would have like kind of a flat area on the end of it in like 22 23 foot of water where it was just a tabletop you know somewhere where they could kind of sit and overlook the whole deep water on any side that they want to look and that's where i found a few fish now granted i caught three fish in the tournament at seven pounds and i finished 27th out of 124 which i was ecstatic about let's make no mistake about that but at the end of the day three fish you know i i felt like i did absolutely everything i could to dial it in i think i was doing the right thing to win the tournament i just didn't like find the actual winning spots you know Uh i I had it figured out as far as the depth zone i needed to be the type of point with that flat tabletop deal the only thing that maybe would have helped is if i found one of those that had like a brush pile on it or something to really make the perfect storm because what ended up happening was the four or five places where I caught fish in practice, I went back to them in the tournament, never got a bite. So the only the fish I caught in the tournament, I actually had to catch off of spots that I didn't even practice. I just was staying hard-headed to that point deal, and I finally went into a point that had some fish on it. So it was, it was a little nerve-wracking, you know, to have only one. I had one squeaker I caught right away in the morning. And, you know, I had that one fish all day until I finally stumbled into that new water where I caught my other two fish. But um, it was actually the bait choice was a big key to it, too. Um, I felt like everybody and their brother on that lake was fishing out on those points and everybody was dragging something on the bottom, like a Carolina rig or a football jig or like something finesse. And I kind of took a different approach. I wanted to get a reaction bite. And for whatever reason, before I went down there, I tied on a three-quarter ounce white jackhammer chatterbait. And I put a jerky J on it. Um, 
you know, just like Jason Lambert used on the strong sure. And I would just pump that off the bottom real fast and let it sink right back to the bottom. And this same thing, just fishing it like a hair jig real fast. And that's how I got all my bites in, in practice and the tournament. It's, it's like I was triggering those fish that were around. And when they hit it, they absolutely destroyed it. So I felt like if I just would have found the right areas, I think I could have absolutely blistered them at that tournament. I, just the way they were eating it, the way they were eating it, I had so much confidence in it, but I just wasn't around enough fish to get it done. Sure. And you didn't see much brush when you were scanning? Like, they don't, does it not like, it doesn't sound like you follow where they're, <laughs> there's like, very, very, very little. And I, I was fishing with uh, unfamiliar graphs too. So I, I maybe didn't have it set right or didn't know what I was looking for on that particular unit, but. All I could really see on a lot of these points was a, a handful of stumps, like, but they weren't like a stump that's a juicy bass holding stump. It's like a, a tree pole stump that's like, you know, this big around in diameter that sticks straight up like 20 feet, you know, yeah. like a, it's a standing timber deal. Yeah. They don't come all the way to the surface, but like those types of trees just don't seem to really hold a lot of bass unless they have like a bunch of offshooting limbs. But these are just like cut, like straight trees. So I didn't find the fish to really use them. Yeah, that's uh, a grind. Those those Indi- those so the tur- the tournament lakes in like Indiana, Ohio, Illinois can be some of the just toughest lakes uh, to fish there are, um, especially when it starts getting to summer. So good question here from Sycamore and then uh, Dustin. What is the biggest difference between fishing a river and a lake besides current? And I think we'll kind of talk this, and this will kind of segue, segue us into what's happening on the river now. Um, I guess the current is definitely the biggest difference. <laughs> um, and, I, and I guess to me, I'll let you kind of expand upon it, but I think bait is different. And I guess especially where we live, lakes and the river have much different bait. Like we don't have shad in the great majority of our lakes and then the river is packed full of shad. So now when you go down south in some of these reservoirs, they do have shad. So that is maybe less of a difference. Um, and it kind of depends on whether you're talking about a reservoir lake or you're talking about a natural lake uh, to some degree when you ask this question. Um, I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on the biggest differences in your mind or how you approach them maybe? The biggest difference that I would say, you can't get away from the current subject because everything is related to current when you're talking about a river system but uh the big difference i see is the way fish position like at all times of the year if you go to a river system that has a lot of current the fish just live naturally more shallow especially when you're talking about largemouth like there's some differences with smallmouth um Sorry, I got a train coming here, but there's some difference right. with smallmouth in like the St. Lawrence River and stuff like that, where they will get deep even in that current. But that's because right. the water is so clear that they can do that. But in any typical river system throughout the United States where you've got more turbid water, you know, two to three foot visibility is probably about as good as you're going to get. Those fish are going to be living shallow at any time of year, even in the middle of the summer, you know four to eight foot of water, That's that fish is not going to go much deeper than that zone. So that's a big difference in my eyes is the way you're going to fish because if I'm fishing shallow fish, I'm not going to be using a 6XD crankbait or a Spro, a uh, little John DD crankbait. 
not going to be using a big football jig, all that kind of stuff. I'm going to be flipping. I'm going to be throwing a frog, reeling a swim jig. You know, that's that's river fishing 101. Um, so to me, that's the biggest thing. And water clarity, too. I mean, you can always find cleaner water in most lakes. But in the river, sometimes you don't have that option. Yeah. And I, and I think that's like saying – What's the biggest difference besides current? <laughs> I mean, that is like, it, it's, you can't really get around it. That's what is the difference. Um, and then that, that drives, that drives all the differences. Uh, and I totally agree that like outside of a few special situations, yeah, you don't hardly ever fish deeper than eight feet. And sometimes you're fishing in less than four feet, you know? Uh, I mean, and like, even when like large don't typically like current when they spawn, but that's that means it puts them in very particular spots because <laughs> then they're avoiding the current, right? And so they're either searching for a certain amount or a certain lack of current through the seasons. Um, so it, either way, it still helps you just find them. And I think, um, yeah, that that's to me. And I think it does limit. Like you can kind of really pare down. Uh, do you see Selby's questions that you're laughing at? Yeah, <laughs> I do. That's what I do appreciate about the river. Is that like, yeah, I don't need, you know, I could usually, I still bring a couple spinning rods because finesse can still play, but I don't need like more than a couple. Uh, I don't need my deep cranking stick. I don't need, you know, I will throw a C rig. I will throw a light football jig, but I don't need like that, that deep stuff. I don't need one ounce football jigs. I don't need, you know, like the really big stuff and the, 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 the dredging stuff, which to some degree keeps it simple, but there is so much water on a river that, that's the other part is like they can get so far away from you. <laughs> like there is so much potential productive water in a river um, that if you don't consider the current and what that's going on, that, you know, can really make it difficult if you, if you ignore the current. So. Um. Uh, let's see here. Uh, do you have to increase the weight with the current to some degree? Yeah, I think, uh, in some situations, depending on what you're doing, but in general, yeah. Um, obviously, if it's top water, no. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see here. Let's, should we touch on the question here before we get well, full under? Let me touch on that weight thing for just a second, though. Sure. Too. It actually depends on what you're trying to do, though, as far as weight in the current. I would actually argue that in most situations, I'm going to use a lighter weight on a river than I would in a lake. And For the sure. why is because I fish, I hold the boat downstream and I'm going to throw upstream and bring my bait back to the boat. So my bait's going with the current. Now, if I'm using something that I want to make contact with the bottom, the current is actually going to help that bait kind of get to the bottom. And you know, you don't even have to really move the rod or anything. Like you just kind of let the current drift that thing along. So my, my big example here is the Carolina rig. On the Mississippi River, uh, well, let's first let's talk about a Carolina rig on a lake. If I'm at Kentucky Lake and I want a Carolina rig, a 10-inch worm on a ledge, I'm going to need like a three-quarter ounce mm -hmm. weight to get down to where I want it and to present it the way I want it in that deeper water. On the river, first of all, I'm not going to use a 10-inch worm. I'm going to use a small little craw bait, but I'm going to use a three-eighth ounce or at the most a half-ounce weight. And I'm going to throw it up in that current. Because, again, I'm only fishing four to six foot of water. And the current is going to help that bait, like you were just saying, 
this kind of bounce back to the boat on the rocks or the shell beds or sandbar that whatever I'm fishing, you know, the current's going to do most of the work for me. And that lighter weight is key. Uh -huh. So anyway, you a lot of weights by fishing a lighter weight. Yeah. <laughs> like, like a lot of like the ledges down South, a lot of those are like clay and like sand and gravel. And like, there's really no downside to going to an ounce. Yeah. There's nothing to hang and you just get down there and you plow and you get down fast. Um, but on the river, it's really about finding that right weight, just heavy enough to get down and make sure the current's not just washing your bait away, but you don't want it so heavy that it's just digging into those rocks where you're hanging up, you know? So, yeah, especially if you're fishing wing dams, like you really need to downsize your weight for dragging something over a wing dam. Cause you're going to get snagged on everything. So yeah, a lot of times for wing dams and like riprap, I will fish what I would call a mojo rig where I'll just peg like a eighth or three sixteenths weight. Um, that seems to come through that stuff really nice. If you don't really need the, the heft of a Carolina rig. So so what, what, I don't know, JJ wants to know what's your, uh, what, what will you share about the, your setup for Carolina? All right. I got one here. So I just, this one's actually a little longer than normal because I've got it still rigged up from Shelbyville, barely been fishing, but I use like a shorter leader. You know, this is only, you can't get the whole thing in the shot, but this is only about, this here is about an 18 inch leader, but typically I use probably a 14 inch leader. And then just uh, all I do is a barrel swivel mm -hmm. and a three-eighths or half-ounce egg sinker. The egg sinker, I used to use a bullet weight, but it actually seems like the egg sinker does a little better job. Like when you come up to a rock and you hit the rock, it just kind of bounce, like bubbles over the rock, whereas a bullet can sometimes just like wedge into something. Um, and then I'm using, on the business end of this deal, I'm just using a three-aught um, – Kamikatsu worm hook, straight shank. That's the best hook that I found. Um, and I'm using a little cross style bait. Pretty obvious what that is, but it's just a cross style bait. <laughs> I'm kind of excited to try the new bigger one they're coming out with, to be honest. Yeah, for sure. But as far as the rest of his question, too, I think he was asking about what kind of stuff I throw it on, right? Yep. So this to me is kind of a two, a double edged sword. The Carolina rig can be used as a search tool. Like I would I'll throw it on points to cover water. Like ideally if I'm going to pull up on like a downward facing standpoint and the smallmouth bite is in its prime. Like I know that's what they're on or whatever on those drop offs off the backside of a standpoint. Ideally you're going to pull up and throw a top water or a swim jig or a rattle trap and catch the crap out of them like right away but most of the time that's not how it goes especially when you're fishing pools like pool eight where there's a lot of fishing pressure um you're gonna have to throw some different stuff so i use that carolina rig to actually find out if there's fish there because uh, mm -hmm. i can i can get through the area where i want to fish pretty quickly you know just, you're throwing it out there and you're just kind of dragging it across the bottom dragging it across the bottom like that and if there's a bunch of fish there, one's going to pick it up. You're going to know pretty quick. Uh, the other thing I use it for is when I know I'm on a school of fish and I've caught them already using other baits, the Carolina rig is like the best cleanup bait that you could ever imagine. That's how I get you – know, that's how I grind out like 
five or six more fish out of like a giant wad of fish that I just caught every cast on a top water. And then all of a sudden they stop biting. Then I pick up the Carolina rig and, and get a couple more. So those are kind of the two types of deals I do with the Carolina rig. Typically I'm not trying to fish it around wood, not trying to fish it around grass. I'm either fishing it around like sand or hard bottom, you know, like shell beds or isolated, like gravelly shell stuff. Like you can fish it around some light grass and that's actually a perfect way to do it. You get around that eel grass. A lot of times on the edge of the eel grass, there'll be like a buffer zone where you've got some cleaner water, but you've also got like a sand and gravelly bottom, which is perfect for the Carolina rig. And then you've got your drop off and then dirtier water in the current. Like if you work that little zone of that gravelly stuff on the edge of the grass, that could be a good way to catch them with the rig too. But, and then wing dams, you know, wing dams are also, it can be a real pain to, to fish a Carolina rig over a wing dam because you'll snag a lot, but it, it is a good way to catch them when they're, when they're, uh, slowing down on that bite so yeah and i think the other key about when you're covering water like you're talking about the carolina rig it tells you a lot more about the spot than throwing a swim jig or a, a lipless or something like that where you're not banging you know you, you get a better feel whether you know there's a little patch of gravel or there's a little rock or you hit a stump or you hit some shells like it just it tells you so much more about that spot and when, then when you get bit on it it tells you why and then you can be like oh okay now i need to look for this right yeah. so it can help you in on what that pattern and what the deal is i think sometimes uh fishing that yeah i would agree with everything you said i don't think and i think the same thing yeah when you have that patchy grass near a sand drop or near a, a wing dam or a closing dam where it's kind of more like maybe a little bit silted in on the, the top side on like not necessarily the ones that connect to the bank but those ones that are more on the off channel side where you'll get yeah. kind of that transition where it's a, you get some grass and you get a little like maybe sandbar and yeah, like that seems to be like the kind of stuff uh, where the, the, the <laughs> just crushes. I know exactly what you're talking about or where you're talking about when you're describing that. <laughs> it's like where I was sitting in 5A two years ago. <laughs> oh, I thought you were thinking about your uh, semifinals oh. at Pool 8. Oh, that's true. Yeah. It's <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, Austin's fishing for some information here, like he needs any. Um, <laughs> does, does that is a very specific question or what? <laughs> That's a very good question. That's, uh, this, this is some stuff that you should be Snapchatting me, man. Cause this is a, this is some juicy stuff, but I do think, uh, it's a very important deal. Like what the current is doing, mostly what the water's doing. Like right. to, to me, a general rule of thumb that sometimes is defied by, the great wonders of bass because they do crazy crap and I don't know what they're doing, but for the most part, it seems like when the water's high and the current's ripping, they will fall back to those down facing points. Mm -hmm. And then um, when the water's low, they chase the current. They want to be in a little bit heavier current. So they get more on the top side of stuff, you know, more in the heavier current, like on a wing dam or, you know, that kind of stuff. So or on the yeah. top sides of those islands, like he's talking about. It is, I don't, I don't watch the gate like a hawk. Like I don't really even look at the flow to be honest with you. And I should probably more, but I look at water level and that kind of goes hand in hand with the flow. Like when you've got higher water, typically you've got more flow and that positions those fish on the back sides of those islands. Nice. Yeah. This, I think this is a good question. I think this is good. Like there's probably a lot of people on here 
that we'll either watching now or we'll watch the replay that maybe are like probably like the high school anglers that found themselves arriving to the river a week ago, <laughs> like new to summer or fishing and current, what would you say, you know, what, what, what high level, what baits, what to look for, uh, just general high level stuff, like not necessarily specific to the Mississippi river, but that, I mean, not necessarily what's happening right now, but like, what, what, how would you approach a river arriving there in, in late June, early July, uh, what, what are you keying on and what are you looking for? Oh, it's, it's kind of tough actually to answer that, but I guess I would say if I'm gearing this specifically towards the Mississippi river at this point in the year, like post spawn is in the rear view, like we're past post spawn. It's summer. These fish are in grass, you know, they were heavily outside of those post spawn areas or outside of those spawning bays and stuff like that where they'd be on the wood and they'd be on rock or real close to the spawning area, just, just outside of it. But now they're just like anywhere, you know, this is the time of year where you're actually looking for subtle things in the grass more so than you're trying to correspond to school of fish with a spawning area. So they, it, you just kind of drive around and look at the grass and try to figure out why you think there might be a fish there. And what I'm usually looking for is clean water as a starting point. You find a place where the current maybe flows into an island of grass on the top side, but then when it comes out the other side of that island of grass, it's going to be cleaner. So I'll look at that area, um, and I'll start by throwing a swim jig around like the outer edges of the grass where it's deeper and clear water, and then I'll start throwing that frog up into the actual grass. Now, if if you're really just you know not comfortable throwing a grass like throwing a swim jig or a frog. Um, one thing you can always do on river systems anywhere is just go and fish the bank, literally the bank, whether it's rock or like a overhanging grass bank. And what you're going to do is just focus on anywhere the current seems to be slack. Now, that being said, you're going to target the exact edge of where the current is ripping past that slack water. So you look for a spot where the bank maybe turns and makes a corner and the current's ripping off the edge of that corner the fish will be right right there, right on the corner where the current is going past in that slack water. And you can just flip a Texas rig, uh, craw or creature bait. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different things you can do, but it's pretty basic when you get on that current break bite. Like just any little point or a lay down tree or a stump, anything that creates a small current break is going to hold a bass from time to time. And that's just a good way to kind of get your feet wet in fishing on a river. Yeah. Um, so, do you think this, from your opinion, are the smallies using the grass as well, or is it? Um, smallmouth will definitely use eelgrass. Uh, right. I don't. I don't seem to catch many smallmouth around any other types of grass. But the big key to the eelgrass is what we talked about earlier with that Carolina rig, is where it grows. It grows around areas that have a harder bottom and areas that do have a lot of current. Uh, eelgrass can tolerate heavy current, so those those smallmouth will actually position around the eelgrass just like they would around a rock point or something like that. Right. And they ambush bait fish. I mean, you can catch a lot of smallmouth on the river in July and August around that eelgrass or even right now. Yeah. And then you kind of talked about the clear water. Like is, do you think the bait is just 
in that clean water or do you think like you'd still look for bait are you looking for activity on top of that clean water or yeah you're, you're definitely wanting to see some stuff in a clear water i actually a lot of times if i get there's certain areas on the river where you can get into some water that's actually like unbelievably clear like not what you would expect in the mississippi river i mean we're talking seven eight nine foot visibility and i'll actually in those areas sometimes i'll actually be looking for individual fish i'll get up there in the weed edge with my sunglasses on and just look for fish and if i see a bunch of big big large mouth or small mouth then i mean i won't even cast i'll just know that they're there and kind of waypoint that area and come back to it because in that clear water making a long cast is really important so if i can waypoint that exact area that i think those fish are kind of swarming around on the weed edge and come back in the tournament and make like a 40 yard bomb cast right onto that spot. It's usually going to have pretty good results for me. So yeah. Long so, cast, I, I remember finding like <laughs> where we were talking about where I was fishing last September, straight up into that backwater where that, yeah. uh, that big ditch that gets really clean and deep there and they will get on that. And I've seen them there and yeah, they're not always the easiest to catch if you can't catch them by surprise though. That's the one thing about those when you get that really deep, clear. Uh, I know exactly, exactly, literally the waypoint that you're talking about, like to a T. And I've had numerous live videos that I've done from that spot when it's been on. I'm, yeah. hoping, I'm hoping it's on in July for that head-to-head -head tournament because I think it'll set up right for that time. But, but that's exactly it. I mean, you get in a little slit of clear water and those fish will just gang up and what you're talking about with them being tough to catch, I, I've noticed sometimes when you get on those weed edges, there's a lot of weird things that'll happen throughout the summer, like certain bug hatches. Uh, uh -huh. one, you know, on that particular area, they were feeding heavily on like, like Helgramite things, you know, like the larva. They're, you know, they're good sized larva. They're like, you know, three inches long, but the smallmouth were eating those and you couldn't get them to bite hardly anything. I could see them swarming around and every now and then they'd come up and bite something off the surface, like a, some kind of bug or whatever, but you know, they didn't want a Texas rig. They didn't want a top water. They'd short strike stuff. So yeah, you got to play around and figure out how to get them to bite. Sometimes you got to finesse those fish in that clear water too. You know, it's something people don't do a lot on the river, but you pick up a little drop shot or even yeah. a Ned rig and that, that's going to be real effective. Those when I found them, I didn't even know what a Ned rig was back then. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, people can laugh all they want about that thing, but it has caught some really good fish for me in very key moments in tournaments that I ended up winning or doing really well in, thanks to that Ned rig. So, I'm not afraid to throw it. Yeah, what distance do you see fish in clear water on the river? Yeah, I think usually it's not real far. Uh, I mean, unless they're left really shallow, but yeah, I mean, you could couple boat links you can sometimes see them i don't know um typically when you see them you probably got to come back and try to catch them later on the river they're pretty uh tricky to catch when you see them they're just because that clean of water is really rare so like when those fish have that water they're it's not like a lake where it's always clean and they're used to like i think boats and people like around them like on the river sometimes in those backwaters you get that really clean water they're not used to a whole lot of traffic you know what i'm saying and they're they're pretty aware of their um let's see here uh gabe says do you prefer river or backwaters 
Oh, I prefer it all, whatever they're on at the time. But I whatever guess whatever the fight is. <laughs> to me, I love it when they get on the main channel. That's when I I really seem to do well in tournaments. I understand how bass position on the main channel. I understand how to catch them, and I know what to look for to where I can avoid a lot of other people. But I guess more often than not, I'm somewhere in a backwater throughout most of the year. There's not a very big window in the year when you can be on the main channel and have success. Yeah. You know, there's always little little areas on the main channel that will be good, but, like, I'm talking about a hardcore main river pattern that's mm-hmm. not something that happens all year long, you know? Okay, the backwater is more consistent throughout the year, wouldn't you say? Like, day in and day out? Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to search out which backwaters are good at that given moment. Like, these fish move around all the time, like, especially in the summertime. They just chase whatever the best conditions that they can live in for that week or day even. Uh, And whether it's because of the bait fish in that area or the water clarity or both or water level. I mean, there's so many factors that are always ever-changing on this river, so you kind of have to just jive with that and figure out where they're going to be. Cause you might smash them in May in this one cut and then they're gone and you don't know where they are, but some other guys smashing them in two cuts over is the same fish that you were on in May, but you just didn't figure out where they went. You know, they, they just jump slew to slew and go wherever they feel like to be in the best water for that time. Yeah. But, it's but backwaters I mean, are always going to have fish, you know? Yeah. Um, how far they see us. I don't know it's so much that they see us. I think fish are from a great distance are aware of your presence a lot of times. And I think it's just about how comfortable they are with how far you are away. I don't know. Would you agree? Like, I think they know, and it's really, it really depends. I think they know we're there and it just depends on how much pressure they're getting. If you're, if you got fresh fish that haven't been beat on, you can probably get pretty darn close to them and they're going to be pretty aggressive. But if you've got, like we're talking about like a cut where people have been in there wearing them out or a flat and boats have been pounding on them, then you're going to have to be more stealthy. You're going to have to make longer casts. You're going to have to make better presentations. So it really is super situational as far as how far they're aware of you and how comfortable they are with you there, I guess, in their environment. For sure. I'm going to turn on the light. It's starting to get a little dark out here. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, thanks everybody for tuning in. This is awesome. Got some good numbers. Um, so, yeah, let's maybe talk like what's there's been a couple questions about the frog and what's happening on the river now. So, um, what are your what are your thoughts on what the fish are doing? And, like, let's say there was a, a high school angler didn't have a great day today and he's watching the live stream, figuring out how he's going to rebound tomorrow. Uh, what would you say? I saw um, – I haven't been fishing a whole ton on the river because of these tournaments. I've been – the last two weekends I've been in Illinois and Winnicott. Um, but I did get out on Monday and fish for a while. What I saw that particular night, it was like kind of a post-frontal deal. They weren't biting very well. But I did see enough to see what the pattern was. And they were on the largemouth. I was throwing a frog. They were on down-facing grass points. With good, you had to have good current ripping off the sides, both sides of the point. Um, and I was fairly close to some spawning areas, so that might have played somewhat of a factor. Sure. But like I said, most of these fish are far enough off the spawn where they're just going to be where they want to be. But 
certainly certain areas that have a lot of spawning areas close by are going to have fish that linger around a little bit longer. So if you can get into a slough that has good grass, good current, and it's got a lot of little interconnecting bays around that you suspect maybe some fish spawned a couple months ago or even just a few weeks ago, that's going to be a good option. Uh, the other thing I found was a very specific type of vegetation that was productive, and that is what I call the deer tongue grass. Um, you'll have to look it up. I don't even actually know the scientific name. You know, Rich knows. You know what I'm talking about. It's just yeah. a certain type it's, of grass that is a uh, – It almost looks like – cabbage that's on the surface with like the leaves <clears throat> and it, it they look like little, almost like little dollar pads but they got a little different shape to them yeah uh, they've got like a diamond like a narrow right. diamond shape and they get real thick together and that's why they're called deer tongue it's, it's kind of the layman term for them but they, they're literally they look like the shape of a tongue of a deer um and they it just creates a mat on the surface and when you get one of a, a big patch of that deer tongue on a point it's duckweed around it, maybe. <laughs> What's that? And if you get some duckweed around it, that's even better. <laughs> duckweed and deer tongue is an amazing combination. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people probably saw that article that FLW put up where I, you know, I interviewed with that, uh, with FLW for that article. And I mentioned that deer tongue, or I mentioned that duckweed was going to be a big factor for this tournament. And that was basically me shooting at the hip saying what I thought was going to happen because they asked me that, like, six or seven or eight days ago and uh -huh. that really hasn't played out like i thought it would like from what i've seen so far like there's not a lot of duckweed out there yet to this day so it's going to be more finding that hard vegetation that's i mean that's why the deer tongue i think is so good right now is because those fish want to be in a mat and the lily pads aren't fully developed yet like they're just not full size and they're not thick together uh the duckweed is not very well. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of duckweed. So the only thing sure. that's creating that awesome canopy that they're looking for is that deer tongue. And what it does right. is create an overhanging canopy, but they've got a hollow area underneath. And that's what those fish want to be around. Yeah. It's, it, I was asking about arrowheads and I would say that's different. Arrowheads typically are emergent. They kind of typically step in there. They typically are shallower. Uh <clears throat> Arrowhead's oh, yeah. are too, though. They're, I caught fish on arrowheads. Slightly different than what we're talking about. Yeah, arrowhead can be very good. Because typically arrowheads on very hard bottom. Um, right? Yeah. Well, it's kind of like a hard mud. I mean, they grow out of mud for sure. But, but typically they grow right to the edge of the current. And the mm -hmm. current will – sometimes you get an arrowhead like point or – like the arrowhead will grow in a straight line but sometimes there'll be irregular like features within that line of arrowheads that right. it'll cause the current to kick out or something like that. And yeah. then you, you can work a swim jig or even just flip a tube or something down the edge of that arrowhead, work those current breaks. And that can be really deadly as well, but it's, it's just all has to be the right ingredients, you know? Yeah. Water all levels are very particular with arrowhead because a lot of times the water, like it gets almost too shallow for it. Sometimes it grows in like, in like, I don't know. But when it's right, it's right. But it's yeah. yeah. Well, all this stuff too is just super dependent on, like you got to have the right type of grass, the right type of setup. But you also have to just be in a good area too, because like you could have everything look perfect. It's got perfect depth, perfect current, like everything. But sometimes like it's just not a good area, like at that moment, you know, like or all it's, 
It um, is, but they haven't. The fish haven't found it yet. Yeah, <laughs> they're already. not there yet. They just they maybe are coming to it, but they're not there yet. Like those yeah. are the types of areas when you find them. It's like you still want to waypoint that and maybe come back to it at a later date. But for whatever reason, they're not there right now. You know, so yeah. So Michael Minutes says the comedy gets stranded on Mississippi River mudflats. <clears throat> uh I wouldn't say. Well, certainly not on a mud flat. It's not. It's not like those tidal waters where we have big, expansive right. mud flats. Although I will say, further down the river, like those lower pools, like Pool 19, they have a lot more mud flats because it's so silty down there. But here, it's you can definitely get stuck on a sandbar if you don't know where you're going. Uh, that's why it's smart to get you know a high quality GPS system and a high quality chip, you know, for your GPS that shows you where you should be running. And with that said, you still have to be careful because a lot of times the river changes so much that if you have a chip from two years ago, like there's certain areas out there that are dry land that were a channel, you know, two years ago. So or they, or they gotta, built a current island to read. <laughs> yeah. They're uh, uh, stuff all the time, embankments and islands and so yeah, there's certain rock piles and stuff that just aren't even marked. So if you don't know that that's there, if, the biggest thing is just to be watching what you're doing. Like, look for obstructions in the current. Like, if the current's boiling and looking weird in a certain spot, it's probably for a reason. And it's just wise to maybe come off pay, uh, come off plane and go idle that area with the motor trimmed up so you know you're going to be safe, you know. And if the one piece of advice I will give somebody – and this is probably going to sound like bad advice, but trust me, this is good advice. If you're going fast, wide open throttle, and you start hitting bottom with your skeg, and it's starting to drag, you can feel your, your boat hitting the sand, don't stop at that point. You're already, it's too late. Like if, if you are dragging bottom, you might as well just can it as hard as you can go because that's the, that's your best chance of making it over that sandbar. And I know that sounds like terrible advice. And hopefully, you're, hopefully you are getting over it. And hopefully you're not driving onto a giant sand flat. But <laughs> well, that's the thing is, every once in a while you could really just be going like up on it. But usually you're you can clear something. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's contingent upon you got to be able to see water on the other side of it. If yeah. if you're seeing if you're driving straight towards an island, well, I'm sorry I can't help you there. Like that that maybe <laughs> when you should sit down and accept fate, but like. More often than not, your best chance of pushing off a sandbar is on the other side of it, assuming you're running down, assuming you're running down current because you're going to have a little bit of help from the current pushing against you. But if you sit down on a sandbar and you've got to turn your boat around and then push it up current, you're really going to have a hard time. So you're better off just flooring it and trying to see how far you can get <laughs> before you get fully stuck. And then maybe you should blow out your motor with uh, with a hose afterwards and make sure you get all that sand out of there. I've always said, they're, like on the river, honestly, you need to have the least amount of prop and skig in the water at all times. So you either idle, trimmed up, or it's full send. Like that's your playing the odds. Like that's your two best bets. Everything in between increases your chance of hitting something. Yeah. Well, and with time on the water, too, you get a lot better at being able to tell that something's a little sketchy. Like, next time, if you are 
in the river and you get into an area where it gets real shallow and you're on a sandbar like that, pay attention to what the current looks like in that area. Because a lot of times when you're in a shallow sandy area, the current will be like swirling around and rippling everywhere all the way across the whole slough. And that's a good indication that literally that whole slough is like super shallow. And when you get good at reading that current, you'll learn where to avoid before you ever even get close to it because you'll see that those subtleties and just know that that means shallow water. So, or you'll be able to looking at like where the currents and looking like a lot of times general, like outside turns are deeper and, and things. And you can see like, what's the, what are the logs doing on the side of the slough? Are they like sticking straight out or are they, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. the more you spend on the river, the more visual cues you start to get like, comfortable with and what does the shape of the bank look like and uh and the, none of none of that stuff is like a hundred percent but uh you can play the odds to some degree uh, yeah uh i think this is a good question dustin stockley or stickley says with the water being lower in the past would they be in the same area deepest spot or go to find a deeper slough okay so that oh i'll see uh, the screen if you want to With the water being lower in the past, would they be in the same area? But I think with low water falling and getting lower, do they tend to go for deeper water or? It, it really depends a lot on a bunch of different stuff. Like it depends on what that water level does to that area. You know, certain areas when the water gets too low, it might cut off current to that area. And it, right. it goes from being an area that has a moderate flow in, in it to an area that's stagnant and has no flow. And that's a big deal because summer fish want to be in current. You know, they they just they want to be in that current. They want bait fish. But when you cut off that current, they got to go somewhere else. If it's if there's still current and it's just a little shallower, as long as they have enough of what they need, you know, bait fish, cover, all the if you check all the boxes, they're going to still be in that area. There's certain sloughs that they will be in all year long because it just has all the right ingredients. So even when that water fluctuates, they're still in that same area. So you well, just, they might just shift right to a little different area because the current hits a little better over here now on this point versus this corner versus like so. I mean, typically if the water changes, they're going to move a little bit, but yeah. it may not as you think but yeah if it falls enough where it like changes the environment completely then you may have to completely bail out of an area they might completely jump sloughs or you know so a lot of times what happens is like if the water is dropping and those fish don't feel comfortable you know typically on the river like under stable conditions like if you're flipping wood let's say the bite is always almost always on the river going to be where that tree meets the bank, like right there next to the bank, like they're tight to the bank. But when the water's dropping and when it gets low enough and the flow gets low enough, they'll move out further off the bank on that same tree. Now we're not talking, this is in Kentucky Lake. They're not getting out in the middle of the river, but they're coming out four or five foot into that tree, which to a lake fisherman, that doesn't mean, that's not a very big deal. But to a river guy, it, it's a big deal when you start to realize that those fish are a little bit further out on those trees. Cause like when you get dialed in on a flipping pattern and you know that those fish are positioned right on the bank, you can just go up to a tree and make one flip. And if you don't get bit, 
I feel pretty confident, at least in practice, if I'm trying to cover water, I feel confident that I eliminated that tree in one flip. But as the water's dropping, you have to keep in mind that they will pull further back. And the same thing happens with grass, any type of cover that you're fishing. They'll be up in the grass when the water's high. They'll be up against the bank or whatever. And as the water gets lower and lower, they pull out of the grass. And eventually they'll be out on the, just out on the edge of it, patrolling the outer weed line. Which means you may want to swim jig the edge versus throwing a frog over the top of it. Yeah. You know, you know, exactly. or, or you want to concentrate not casting at the bank, pulling all the way off the edge. You might want to 45 it or, or parallel it so you're catching that first five feet or something like that. You know, so, yeah, that's all, you know, pay attention to where. And, and so you may not necessarily know what's happening in the river. Or you, it could be falling. You know, you can because you can watch the gauges, but the gauges are typically in one spot on a pool. Right. And uh that doesn't mean the water isn't falling a little bit in your pocket or rising a little bit you know depending on the flow right so i mean like you kind of almost need to be paying attention to what's happening in your area um to some degree because if like it could be falling but the current's going but that could be pushing water in somewhere right yeah uh, and uh and causing your fish to act differently than maybe they do in a different area so pay attention to the bites right like if you're thrown over a big weed mat and all your bites are coming out at the edge well then maybe you should start frogging the edge or you swim jig the front of it and the partner in the back should frog it and concentrate on the, you know, just into it, you know, so pay attention to where the bites are happening and, uh, and, and, and adjust for sure. Um, so Batterman says, I've never gotten stuck in the river. Surprisingly, I have not had to get out of my boat very many times. So, <laughs> uh, Dustin, he's hoping he didn't miss the wing dam lesson. Uh, no, we didn't talk too much about wing dams yet. So high level without getting into like super specifics, like what, I mean, there's, you know, from in like a pool eight, there are probably, I don't know, 150, 200 wing dams on that pool or maybe more. I'm sure, yeah. I've never counted. But. Hundreds probably, right? Like over a hundred for sure. Yeah, uh, for sure. How do you, I mean, what, what, I mean, just, you know, it, it probably changes from season to season, but like, what are general things that you like about a wing dam? And obviously water level affects that and, and things like that. But what are some tips for like eliminating wing dams? Like, okay. I'm going to give you just a quick rundown in the springtime. Wing dams are almost, almost 90% of the wing dams on the river are useless in the spring pre-spawn that being said you've got that 10 percent. now the 10 percent that are good are going to be near areas that those fish are trying to get to to spawn so they stage on a select few wing dams that are really close to spawning areas so how, how do you find those spawning areas well you look for areas that have no current rock hard bottom bank you know smallmouth like to spawn on rocks they're not spawning on the rocks but they spawn where the rock meets the sand, you know, that kind of stuff. Find a place where there's smallmouth spawning and then backtrack downstream of that and find wing dams that are near that area. Within by by near proximity uh, proximity, I'm talking like within a mile, you know, that's where you're probably gonna target. I wouldn't go much further so, than that because location, location, location. Yeah, you, you need to kind of have that basic knowledge of where you think they're going to be going. Otherwise, you're just kind of shooting in the dark. Um, af after springtime, 
the wing dam fishing is a little more predictable. Well, actually, I should say it's actually less predictable because like I've talked about with the largemouth, the smallmouth are the same way. Once they're done spawning, they just start going wherever they want. Like, I feel like these fish have a range, uh, a range of several miles, maybe even 20 miles, especially when you're talking about smallmouth, where they just roam within that range throughout the year. And then they eventually will come back to the same areas to winter, but where they're going to be throughout the year, that fish doesn't even know where he's going to be next month because it's going to be dictated by the water. So basically I don't mess with the main channel at all. If the river's high, like super high, like I, I do a little bit depends on the situation, but basically you're looking for lower water to be on a wing dam bite. And that typically happens in July and August on into the fall here on the Mississippi River. I start looking for smallmouth on, on the main channel in like late July, early August, which basically coincides with the shad. When we start seeing a lot more shad here because they're finally getting to be that two to three inch size from the young of the year hatch, that's when the wing dam bite picks up, provided we have that low water. If the water is blown out in August, they're, they're still not going to be on the wing dams. You're going to have to get in the backwaters and fish sandbars and rock points and stuff like that. But and that's because the bait is also not going to be on the main channel, right? For the what's most that? That's and largely because the bait's not going to be there either, right? The right. bait's still on those sandbars and those sloughs and well, and even if the bait's there, which sometimes it is there. I mean, I've seen times where the water was blown out, there was shad everywhere, seagulls were crashing on the shad, but there's just no smallmouth to be had. Because the smallmouth just they just have a current preference that they want to be in and it's like a certain <laughs> i don't know how to describe it it's kind of an intuitive thing like that i'm always just subconsciously sure. looking for but when i see the right current i'm like oh this is perfect it's like a moderate current that's what you're looking for it's a current that you can hold on with your boat like with your trolling motor your trolling motor should always be able to hold you there if your trolling motor can't hold you there you're probably in too much current for a smallmouth that's just the way it is. Um, so yeah, That's good tip. if the water's falling, I mean, if the, if the water's falling out of out of the backwaters from being really high and it's falling super fast, I'm gonna look for wing dams that are close to like major outlets from those backwaters because that's where those smallmouth are gonna start showing up first. Um, but if the water's been low for like several weeks and it's August and it's hot and there's a big time wing dam bite going on. Like you're going to have to cover a lot of wing dams to find where they are because they could be anywhere. They will just kind of keep migrating up the river and following shad and and just living where they want to live. So you got to cover. I've got select favorite wing dams, right. but I mean to this day, every year I'll pull up on a wing dam that I've never caught them before and catch fish off of it. You know, so it's just one of those deals where if you know that they're really on wing dams and you're practicing for a tournament, you're better off like fishing every wing dam that you can. So do you, do you think there's any validity to like scanning them and looking for ones with more bait or activity on them? Or is that not really worth in your opinion? Uh, if, if I don't have a lot of time to practice for a tournament, I don't, I don't think I'd mess with that. I'd rather just pull up with like a crankbait that I have confidence in and like just burn down the whole thing and see if I can at least get a bite. Yeah. I get one bite, then I'll slow down. And a lot of times you'll find out that there's actually a lot of fish there that, you know, catch on a carolina rig or something like that but 
that would be, you know, scanning those wing dams might be something that you'd want to do like after the fact, maybe like if you found some fish, then maybe scan it and see like, Oh, you'll find out that, Oh, there's a section of the wing dam. That's got like a hole in it. You know, that's why that was good. And then you try to, I've heard guys say other guys like Brent Hames and guys that say that they won't fish wing dam unless they see a certain amount of bait on it. And maybe, and maybe the electronics that they've got are so good now that, that you can see bait on the wing dams personally, like my electronics, I don't think I'd be able to tell you that there's bait on a wing dam. Like, I mean, the, the wing dam's like super shallow. And well, is, you can scan and wing dams are not the easiest thing to scan, especially when, you want lower water so typically that means the wing dams are getting sketchy on top right like typically i mean in general you don't want six feet over the top of your wing dam you only want a certain amount of water going over the top of it um right and and so like you can't necessarily like drive over a good wing dam with your boat sometimes you can but uh and like if you're trying to in let's say if you're kind of just trying to scan it if it's if it's not directly perpendicular to the bank it's going to block your view right like right. And if you come from the bottom you're only going to see the bottom side of it right you can't see over it and if you come from the top and the current's ripping it's really dangerous <laughs> to yeah. try to without getting too close to it so uh, it's an interesting thought but it's not as easy as it sounds to scan yeah. wing. firstly i i also would think too that most of the best wing dams like if you're going to crack them on a wing dam those fish are in two to three foot of water and they're usually on basically on top of the ring on, on top of the wing dam, or at least they might not be sitting on top of the wing dam, but that's where your bite is going to come is when your bait is going over the top of the wing dam. So to me, if I'm driving on top of this two foot deep wing dam, like I'm ruining it already before I even make a cast. So that's, I mean, I feel like you have to go around it and that's not always super easy. Um, uh, so when you're approaching, let's say you're like going into practice and you're trying to cover a bunch of wing dams. Do you come up from the bottom and crank it out, crank it up? Do you like, what, how do you approach it to try to like cover it quickly and get a bite? I usually start on the tip and just burn. Just something. Tip? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> well, it also depends on the water level. Like if it's low right. water, if it's low water and the current's low, I'm going to start on the tip. That's where a lot of times your bite's going to be. Um, but if the water's kind of at a mid mid range, like a little, right. like there will be fish on the main channel. Don't get me wrong. Like when the water's a little high and sometimes even when it is really high, it's just more isolated stuff. But as the water becomes more high, I'm going to go further and further in on that wing dam. Like typically a general rule of thumb, high water, those fish are positioned on the wing dam right next to the bank. Yeah. It creates like that corner of current being blocked by the point of the wing dam. And when the water's low, they migrate further out towards the tip where they want to be in that heaviest river current. And the, the wing dam's usually a little deeper out on the end of it too. So that's a factor. I'm going to look at the water level. I'm going to look at the flow, which is all pretty much just basically with my naked eye. Like I'm going to look at that flow and be like, okay, this is, this is good current, which again, I can't explain it. It's a developed, like feel but if the current's low i'm gonna focus on that tip and uh yeah i start on the tip and just usually like a square are you, are you coming up from the bottom on the tip casting up yep i stay downstream of the dam and i throw up 
up current and bring my bait back over the dam 95% of the time. Yeah. Now, if, if so they're working in till you feel you've covered the, 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 as much of the wing dam you feel based on the current that you're seeing. Yeah. And if I get bit on that crankbait, which is usually uh Spro little John MD is like my go-to wing dam crankbait, just like a little medium diving, small crankbait. And I'll throw a shad pattern if I feel like I'm around a lot of bait. Otherwise, I'll throw a craw pattern. I eat a lot of sure. crayfish on the wing dams too. Um, and if I don't get a bite on that, I've got to move to the next one. If I get a bite or some indication of a bite or see a fish blow up or something like that, then I'll pick up a Carolina rig. And I'll fish mm -hmm. until I catch a fish or two. My rule of thumb is like if I catch um, – a couple of 12 inches, like I'm just going to keep hooking fish until I catch one that I know is like a good fish. If I catch like a two and a half or bigger, I usually will kind of just say, okay, this is somewhere I'm going to stop, you know? Right. And it depends on like the river you're on, the pool you're on, the time of year, yeah. how is it fishing, right? Like what's a good fish right now based on the conditions, basically. Right. Absolutely. And if you're in Illinois and it's a keeper, that's a good fish. Yeah. Yeah, then you're already just bummed out that you stung one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so let's uh, so Lunker Lewis is want to hear your top five baits on the Mississippi River. So maybe let's say like let's keep it like now. So like let's say you're out in the high school derby tomorrow. You go and five rods on the deck. What are your what are your five rods for you know, tomorrow? This is hilarious. Go really back to high school, Cade. Oh, that's not good. This is hilarious because okay. I had literally, I literally brought five rods out. And we did not stage this. This is happening real life. Yeah, I actually just literally had five rods that I thought would be talking points because these are my mainstays. So the first one we've already gone through. This is the Carolina rig. Talked about it earlier. If you just joined in, uh, half ounce egg thinker. Sometimes you go to seventeen pound fluoro. Um, usually 20 right now it's 17, but I usually just go with 20 and I keep the same line, um, for leader and main line because I don't break off ever. And it's just easier that way. Like when I do need to change a leader or something, or if I do get snagged and I have to actually snap it off, I just take the same line from my main line to create my new leader. And it takes me about 45 seconds to retie a whole Carolina rig. I've done so many that I kind of have it dialed. So that's my setup there. We talked about it earlier. Other setup would be just a Spro Frog, Bronze Eye 65. Uh, that's not necessarily my favorite color by any means. That's uh, Rainforest, I think, is the color. But my, my general go-tos on the river would be Straight Black. I think it's Midnight Black is what it's called. And then Killer Gill. Those are two awesome early summer colors. Killer Gill is going to work really good if you're around, like, more bait fish and bluegill especially. But, but it works good around, like, small minnows too. I think they just like that more silvery look when they're feeding yeah. a lot of bait. Um, black is just better in a mat. Like if you're in a thick duckweed mat, like something that contrasts with that vegetation, because most of the vegetation is going to be like a bright green. So if you've got a black, it really creates a lot of contrast. That's what I like to throw in those mats. Some people like to use like yellow or something so, so they can actually see the bait on the mat. But I feel like yellow is just too close. Um, close to the color of the vegetation for those fish to see it very well now i do use yellow if i'm fishing dirty water and i'm not fishing grass like if i'm fishing overhanging stuff but that's a different topic for another day 
third one here is just a dirty jigs tackle swim jig. Right now I've got white tied on because I was down south and I was fishing a shad lake. But typically this time of year I'm using like a green pumpkin or some sort of bluegill slash craw representation because they're feeding on a lot of that type of stuff. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of shad presence right now. It's basically bluegills, crawfish, and like small minnows, like pin minnows or emerald shiners. So it's you're not really throwing a lot of bait fish colored moving baits right now. I'm throwing that even for like small eggs, you'd be going green pumpkin natural right now. Yeah, well, the smallmouth will key a little more on those small minnows, and that's what makes them so hard to catch a lot of like pattern and catch consistently this time of year. With them, if I found a school of smallmouth, I'd probably be using a little more like small topwater baits, um, like walking topwater baits, like like the the mini Sammy, like they make that real small Sammy. Lucky craft that works good. Um, Luke, Luke works really good when we get on a small bait, even a little jerk bait. But also, Carolina rig is just going to be my mainstay for small at any time of year. And then a buzz bait, buzz bait is a big deal all throughout the summer on the river. I throw a dirty jig, Canterbury Pro Buzz, then you put your favorite toad on there. It's pretty slick buzz bait, quarter ounce. I, I bought a bunch of like three eighths and half ounce buzz baits, but all I ever throw is a quarter ounce with that toad on there. It's more than enough like weight to get it out there. And I just like how it, it comes right to the surface right away. That's just my go-to buzz bait black. I always use black toads right now. I got one with a red blade on. I was just messing around with it, but typically I use either a, like a silver blade or a black blade on the river. And then the last thing I'm going to throw a lot of is a small Texas rig. You know, well, it's not small, but lighter weighted, three eighths ounce. You know, right now as a craw tube, I got a lot of confidence in that bait. But I'll also go to like a a yo mama or a beaver type bait if you're if you're getting technical. But um, craw type baits on the Texas rig is really my my go to deal this time of year. And what I'm seeing right now on the river is. The frog bites really like they've been choking a frog pretty good, but they're not like in the mats like I expected they would be. And I think part of it's because the water is low enough now where they're kind of out on that edge. So mm-hmm. that's where that that's where that craw tube has been uh, a big player because um, it's sucked them out to the edge, and you can just flip them up like they're grouped up. You find a little sweet spot in a weed line, and they're grouped up on that stuff. So flipping seems to be the deal when you find that. Nice. That's my five. I, I wasn't the buzz bait. I wouldn't have guessed, but I've never been a big buzz bait river guy. I haven't got on that bite enough. So it's kind of a morning deal. And also like if you, if you get one of those nice cloudy, like low light muggy days where it's uh-huh. just, that just works really, really well. If you're around isolated grass, especially like over eel grass and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, it's a killer for fucking water. Yeah. This would probably be my substitute for. There you go. I wouldn't be covering in much water, so I'd have to be pretty confident in the area, right? As much, but this is more of my go-to for this time of year on the river. It would work pretty well for those smallmouth too. If you found a school that was eating that, you know, those little bait fish I'm talking about. Yeah. 
What is the water temp up there at the moment? Oh, boy. Well, I didn't even turn on my electronics on Monday when I went fishing. So I'd have to pretty much just guess for you because I don't even know. It's If I had to guess, I would say probably 78, upper 70s. Sure. You know, but I can't even tell you. <laughs> so I can tell you down at uh, Shelbyville Lake in Illinois, it was like 81. But that doesn't help you. JJ said it's mid-70s. Yeah. That sounds about right. I mean, 75 to 78, depending on the day, how hot it gets. You know, we haven't had the big mayfly hatch, so it, typically that happens when the water stays consistently in the upper 70s. So it, it was pretty cool the last couple of mornings, so I think that might have knocked it back a little bit. But the next big heat wave we get, we're going to see uh, probably a pretty big hatch. So what what are you so what's what do you do when the hatch comes? Like what what are your, what are your tips for a hatch? Uh, so there's multiple types of mayflies on this river, and like the first hatch is always the yellow ones. And some people get all excited, like oh look at these mayflies, but I I don't feel like the bass really eat those much, or I shouldn't say it's not the bass so much that eat mayflies. It's more the other fish that are eating the mayflies that you're really targeting. Um, but those yellow mayflies just don't seem to trigger like a big feeding reaction. Like the brown ones do these brown mayflies. Those ones are smaller, right? The yellow ones are about the same size. They look almost the same exact. They, they look exactly the same other than the color, but the brown ones, that come out in huge numbers. Those are the ones that the fish will go crazy for. And and it's bluegills and crappies and everything comes shallow to eat those mayflies. And the bass are right behind because the bass want to eat those bluegills. Well, the bass will eat some mayflies as well. But the biggest thing is, you know, the, the mayflies, when they fall into the water, it creates kind of a chain reaction where everything's feeding on those mayflies and it creates an opportunity where a bass can go and, feed on bluegill that are distracted because the bluegill are trying to feed and they don't even realize that there's a big bass about to eat that bluegill, you know? So what I do is I look for trees. There's a lot of different signs you can look for. The most obvious is when the mayflies are so thick that the trees are actually sagging and they're like, the trees will be black and sagging over because there's so many mayflies that actually weighs them down. I know that's really hard to wrap your head around, like insects, like actually making a tree branch sag, but it happens. And uh, when you find that, I take a frog, I cast it into the tree, and I purposely get it hung over a couple branches, and I just like shake my rod. I don't want to rip the frog out. I want to keep it in the tree, but I shake it, get that line to uh, move the mayflies out of the tree, and a bunch of them are going to end up in the water as a result. And it just starts the fish frenzy. You know, the bluegills start eating that stuff. And then I drop my frog into the water at the precise moment and I get smoked by a big bass that's waiting to ambush a bluegill. And, you know, you could put in some good fish. You can put some good fish in the boat doing that because of, you know, the chain reaction that you're capitalizing on. Uh, the other thing that you can look for that, you know, like, sometimes there's more subtle mayfly hatches going on that you don't like, it's only happening in like a small little area. And it's not a huge one, but it's enough to get some fish moving. Um, you'll look for, like, birds. Bird activity is a big deal. If you see birds, like, flying into the trees and flying out of the trees and just, like, swarming these trees, they're probably feeding on mayflies. Especially red-winged blackbirds, 
they're all over those trees that have mayflies. And I've even seen seagulls. Seagulls will eat mayflies too. So just keep an eye on on the whole. I, I believe a lot in uh, when you're out there on the water, just being very super aware of everything around you, like all the different animals and like every creature that's out there in the river is somehow connected to another creature. Like, and so if you're paying attention to the signs that you're given by other animals, like you can start to figure out what's going on. Like even just as simple as like, you see a blue heron on a point, like that's a really good indication that there's bait fish there. And a lot of times there'll end up being bass on those types of spots because there's bait. So the same deal when you're looking for mayflies, you're looking for something that gives you um, a tip, you know, so I hear a lot of people talk about going with really small poppers and little small buzz baits from, you don't you're not buying into that to like mimic the mayflies. No, I don't, I don't care about the mayflies themselves unless it's like a smallmouth deal. Then that's different. Like smallmouth. I do feel that smallmouth actually eat mayflies like a lot more than largemouth do. So if you're on smallmouth, then you're going to have to do some stuff. Then I'd probably, I'd probably throw that Ned rig. Um, maybe, I, I mean, up north, like a hair jig is probably your best bet during a mayfly hatch, like ever. Um, but here on the river, that's just not a big player just because the water clarity and stuff and, and the, <laughs> the ways that you can fish. But if, if I'm on largemouth around a mayfly hatch, I'm not trying to mimic the mayflies. I'm trying to mimic the bluegills. Oh, maybe for smallies, but other than that, people are complaining that I'm not have a visor on. Just throwing them off. There you go. It's a good visor too. It's a dial. I like it. Wasn't very good luck on Sunday. Didn't really didn't have the mojo. I'm not, I'm not buying his visor yet. I'm getting attacked by mosquitoes right now. Yeah, it's a little buggy out here too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so cool. Yeah, I guess we're like 90 minutes in. A little more. Covered a lot of ground. Um, what else? So you've been kind of dabbling with some videos, spottingly. Are you gonna you gonna create some more content? You waiting for this new boat? What's what's your plan for your YouTube channel, Kate? Because you got some good stuff. You just don't post very often. Yeah, I know. I I go through these phases where it's like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah. I want to do all this stuff. I want to do all this stuff, and then I just get so busy. So I, <laughs> I can understand why some of these pros and stuff are like hiring people to just make videos for them because. It's a lot of work, and I'm sure you know all too well, like how much work goes into producing that stuff on your own. And it's hard for me. I mean, I've I've got a, a full time job plus a side job now, and and trying to fish a lot of tournaments and be prepared for those tournaments. And I'm also moving uh, in a few days to on Alaska, which is basically lacrosse. So I'm trying to get that situated. There's just a lot of stuff going on right now that I'm trying to do in addition to getting ready for the next Illinois tournament and buying a boat next week. So right now my video production is at a standstill, but hopefully I did shoot some stuff on Monday night. I got some pretty good little fish catches. They weren't big fish, but I got some good action and I hopefully we'll have some more video stuff to put out soon, but until That's what I need to get down there and we can just pull all that info out and put it to practice. Once yeah. you have it's easier, Kate, I promise. What's that? Have some kids, you'll have more time. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, somebody's calling me. 
Yeah, the bugs are getting calling me. I wonder what he's. But say, like, if you want to catch up with Cade, if you're not already, follow him on Instagram. I think it's what Cade Laufenberg fishing. Uh, that's where he posts in his Snapchat. But that's where he's posting, and you're you'll get a pretty good pulse for what's going on. He kind of keeps us up to date in his stories and stuff. Um, so I think if you're looking for what's going on in the river, that's a good place to uh, uh, to follow him. I do got to say, if you find me on Snapchat, if I don't know you, just please don't add me on Snapchat because that's kind of my personal. That's my personal thing. I I do stuff on there that I don't want the whole world to know <laughs> necessarily. You know, like follow him on Instagram. Yeah, exactly. Instagram is where you want to follow me if you want my fishing updates and stuff. Snapchat's more for close friends and family. I feel honored. Yeah, yeah, we're Snapchat buddies. <laughs> <laughs> maybe like maybe I'll create a second Snapchat account for only fishing stuff. I don't know how that all works. Snapchat. There's a way to add a second multiple account and have the drop down like on Instagram, but uh Kent Middlestad says, if you're fishing a multi-day derb on the river, can you, everyone who fishes day two outside the weigh-in, cash a check? I'm sorry. I got distracted. Um, the derby on the Can you catch a bunch of release fish on a second day of a two-day tournament? On the river, I. it's not a very big player here. It really isn't. I mean, it depends, I guess, on the tournament. Like, when the Elite Series was here, that happened. Like, a release fish ended up being a big factor. Um, but typically, like Randall Thurman after, like I, I definitely saw it when the like a Costa follows a BFL, then it definitely plays. Yeah, it, that's what I was going to say. In a super like, day tournament, like a two day super tournament, not really. No, yeah. Well, when Randall Tharp um, did that, like he caught a big bag off the Clinton Street Bridge on on day two or three or whatever it was. That was like. We literally had a big team tournament in lacrosse like five days before and the water was rising and it like positioned those fish in that corner because they had nowhere else to go. So it was like the perfect storm and it set up perfectly. But like if you don't have a tournament that's at least the weekend before, like it can't be any further than the weekend before. Those fish are going to be gone so fast because this river is just so good and fertile. Like they just find their way back like fast it's unbelievable no place yeah, i remember winnicott that never start after a bfl uh and there was a bunch of guys from like texas and random places that they just caught just big random fish on little river points just south where the uh the black connected with the like you know the, the, the main river on just stupid stuff and they they caught giant bags on day one and they barely caught limits after you know so like <laughs> yeah that makes sense yeah, I mean, I don't get to fish under those situations very often because it's like I fish the BFLs, and I mean, they don't put it. The BFLs are like a month apart, so I guess I guess it makes sense. Like if you've got a huge tournament and you're fishing right after that huge tournament, then yes, it's going to play more of a role. Like for example, this this uh, summer we've got it's actually going to be terrible. I'm not looking forward to it as much as I'm looking forward to it. I'm not looking forward to it. We've got the BFL on Saturday. We've got Wisco Bass has like a hundred boat tournament on Sunday, the day after the BFL, and then starting Monday through Friday, we've got the head-to-head tournament in lacrosse, all in lacrosse, all consecutive days in a row, and so <laughs> the fish are going to be cut up like Swiss cheese. I mean, it's going to be crazy, and that so, could make 
be more of a factor, but you're not going to catch me pushing retreads for the head-to-head -head deal. I promise you that. So the head-to-head's pretty good money. Are you going to fish everything regardless of the live camera? Or is there anything you won't fish because of that? No, I will fish everything. I don't care. People can take my spots. And they're not the fish that I find are fish that are there for a week. And I sure. most of the tournaments that I've ever won in my life, I have never caught a tournament winning bag there again. Like when sure. I win a tournament, it's like a one time deal. So I, I feel confident in saying that I really don't care about showing stuff like there's certain spots that okay, maybe pre-spawn. We probably the one time a year where maybe yeah. be really consistent, but other than late that, fall, late fall too. Yeah, or wintering, right? Like really, like yeah, like your your, your BFL Super Tournament. That's going to get very predictable, probably, or your your regional. So um, yeah, yeah. When they're coming out of the wintering and pre-spawn, and when they're going to it, then they, it starts to get pretty concentrated. But um, so cool. All right. Well, I know you got to get up early. You got you want to get up. You got to work again tomorrow. We don't want to keep you up. Cade used to be young and strong and go all night, and now he's he's like an old man. He's he's got to get to bed. Yeah, I get up at like five fifteen every day now. It's crazy. I thought I would like working uh, seven to three in the summertime. Uh, that's what our hours are now, and I don't know. I actually kind of miss my uh, night shift, three to eleven. I could fish fish more. <laughs> I have not been fishing much because I just. I could fish every day after work, but I just, I've learned my lesson from trying to do that, that if I try to fish every day after work and then get up at five, I just am dragging all week. So, and I don't I mean, get if you had like a real black job and you worked at like Dick's Sporting Goods, it'd be a lot easier. So uh, <laughs> like Kevin Roop. <Rue? laughs> yeah. <laughs> he fishes a lot. I'm jealous of that dude. He gets out there, he gets after it, but he's got the drive to do it. See, I, if I could fish that much, I don't know if I even would. Cause I get, I get burnt out on it. I got to take a break every now and then. But I do see Austin's uh, question. I will answer that quick. So any thoughts on one seagull sitting on a sandbar? Is it there to feed on bait versus three or four just there to rest? I personally feel if I see one seagull sitting on a point, that's game on usually. I mean, I've had multiple times in a tournament where there was just one seagull sitting on a log or something like that. I pull up and, like, throw a top water and catch, like, two or three big ones, you know, like it's usually a good sign for sure. It's not something I neglect. I at least try it. Nice. So I just, well, there's still quite a few people hanging out here. Just cover like, so this will be a replay tomorrow. So obviously most of you didn't sit through the whole almost two hours. Um, you can watch the replay. I'll have a timeline in there. So if there's certain topics you want to, to see, um, I'll have kind of a timeline built where you can click on the timestamp. Uh, there will also be an audio version of this on a podcast. So if you want to listen to this and then really let it sink in what Cade said and, uh, and and listen to it while you're walking or driving, that'll, that'll be available. And there'll be a link to that in the next day or so. So there's a lot of options. Uh, you know, I think we covered a lot of great stuff. I definitely learned some things. I know a bunch of other people did. So this all will be there for archived and to, uh, to soak in. And uh, I appreciate it, Cade. Uh, make sure you guys go follow him on uh, Instagram. Uh, follow him on YouTube too, but don't don't wait too hard. It might, it might be a while, but uh, when he does, it's usually pretty good. And I think we we're definitely going to get out when I get this motor fixed, or when you get your boat, we're getting out and we're going to film something pretty sweet because I think you know the river and you know how to catch them. And I think I've started to figure out this filming thing. I think we could make something pretty cool. Yeah, we could uh, 
we could maybe do like a live, like a competition or something like that. Like, like they do with Scott, you know, Martin. Yeah. We could do yeah. one of those deals where it's like, like, a fish or something like that. So you don't have to be right on your, where you're going to be wearing them out and all your derbies and we can just yeah. out there and have some fun. For sure. Or maybe five or five A. Absolutely. All right, man. Sounds good. Yeah. Awesome. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks everybody watching. Make sure you hit that like and subscribe. And as always, here to help you catch more bass and suck less. And thank you for letting me come on. Thanks, everybody. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. As always, thanks to all of you that hung in till the end of this podcast. This has been another episode of the Hellabass Bass Fishing Podcast Experience. Please consider sharing this with any of your bass and buddies and friends. This is the best way for podcasts to grow is through word of mouth. Also, don't forget to search Hellabass on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, or just about anywhere else so that we can connect in more ways. As always, here to help you catch more bass and suck less. <laughs>